Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, where each week, Dr. Frank Domino, along with his guests, translates today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. Now, broadcasting from the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester, Mass., your host, Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health, and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Marty is a 48-year-old obese male with type 2 diabetes. He works as an accountant and spends his days sitting in front of his computer. While he does not smoke, he is not at all careful with his diet and has no interest in exercise. After finding his hemoglobin A1c at 8.6, you place him on metformin and titrate him up to 1,000 milligrams twice a day. After six months, though, and a trip to the diabetic nurse educator, his A1c still remains quite high at 8.1. In the past, your second choice for this patient would be to use a sulfonylurea, but should we? This is Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and joining me today to talk about type 2 diabetes and sulfonylureas is Susan Feeney, uh, Assistant Professor and Coordinator of the Family Nurse Practitioner Tract at the University of Massachusetts Medical School Graduate School of Nursing. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thanks, Frank. So um, this is an interesting case. What are the risks and benefits of sulfonylurea use with uh, type 2 diabetics? Up until not that long ago, these were my second choice for meds. They were uh, very effective at lowering A1Cs. We didn't have any real data that showed they improved morbidity or mortality outcomes, but they were fairly simple to use as long as the patient was not at high risk for hypoglycemia. That being said, uh, a recent uh, systematic review and meta-analysis looked at their role and found some very startling information. The first was that um, sulfonylurea use increased the risk of cardiovascular-related mortality in all-cause mortality. So here we are, we're using an agent that hasn't been proven to improve any outcomes and actually increases the risk of death. Um, they were higher risks associated for myocardial infarction when, S, well, so, when sulfonylureas were compared to some of our newer agents, as well as stroke. So I think as a class, uh, this group of medications, while valuable from the 60s forward, probably have had their last, uh, last calling in our, in our care, and I think it's time we rethink their use. Well, it's interesting because they also are very cheap. So, and every time I look at the news, there's a new medication out. So what are the other options to use when you have either, um, you don't have this robust response from metformin? Well, um, when we think of type 2 diabetes, we often think it's a disease of hyperglycemia, but that's our uh, erroneous impression. It's really a disease of insulin resistance. And when you treat insulin resistance, there are only a few things that improve outcomes, the most, the most common of which is weight loss. Decreasing adiposity by just as much as 5% can dramatically improve long-term outcomes in type 2 diabetics who are obese. So my next steps have changed from sulfonylureas to drugs that will actually have an impact on the patient's weight. So sodium glucose co-transport 2 inhibitors, SGLT2 inhibitors, are probably my, my, my next step, primarily because they're oral, they're once a day, and their risks are very low. They have the potential, in theory, to cause 
hypoglycemia and um, urinary tract disorders, but that risk is very, very low. The real uh, worrisome risk is that in patients with severe peripheral vascular disease, they can actually increase the risk of amputations. But that risk is, again, extremely low, but that might be their only severe um, contraindication. Glucagon-like peptide 1 agonists are also wonderful, uh, they, but they're given by injection. And both of these classes of drugs have that horrible adverse effect of being very expensive. So if you're paying out of pocket, they're ridiculous. If you're going to use them, you're going to have to find out what the patient's insurance is, what their formulary prefers, and when they last change their mind. Because I have, I have been using the SGLT2 inhibitors now for over a year, and come, come September 1st, the insurers I typically deal with switch to a different preference. The dipeptide peptidase 4 inhibitors are weight neutral. And so I probably don't think of those as agents I use as second line after metformin. Um, but I, I consider them. That being said, I would say they're a best third line in, in my world. I don't ever recommend uh, insulin as a second line, primarily because um, diabetes, especially an obese type 2 diabetic, needs to lose weight. And insulin is anabolic. It makes you bigger. It primarily makes you bigger, not by building muscle, but by increasing your fat uh, stores. And that seems counterproductive. We know it does not improve any outcome in type 2 diabetics and makes a number of them worse. And then TZDs, um, there was quite a bit of controversy about their adverse effects, and maybe they were increasing the risk of bladder cancer and increasing adverse effects associated with heart failure. Um, I think that data is very nebulous. But these are fourth-line drugs to me, and, and um, I really, I will do anything not to put a patient on insulin. Um, I'll, I'll spend hours with them dealing with weight loss counseling before I'll consider insulin as an agent. So look at, let's, let's look at patients who are already on sulfonylureas. We have, a mere, you know, many, many people. So should we be switching those folks now to another agent based on this information? Well, I actually think um, if you can overcome the financial limitations of the, of the newer agents, I think it's not an unreasonable thing at all to do. Uh, think about it. Patients with type 2 diabetes normally have multiple comorbidities, including risks for cardiovascular disease. So we've got a drug you're giving them that actually increases the risk of adverse cardiac events in cardiovascular events, including stroke, MI, and death. And those are pretty big adverse outcomes. So I think there remains good data that we consider uh, switching them off. I don't think there's any data that explains to us how. So uh, the sulfonylureas often have a fairly long half-life, at least 12 hours. So maybe stopping it for uh, 24 to 48 to 72 hours and then gradually adding the other agent in is a reasonable thing to do. Um, explain to the patients that these drugs have uh, a different set of adverse risks and side effects, but that their risks and side effects are considerably less. Um, and then provide close follow-up after you make the change. The groups I worry about the greatest are my seniors. So here's a population again. I mean, I can think of one patient now who's in her early 90s who's been on a sulfonylurea for the 21 years I've known her. And A, 
she's uh, changed a verse to begin with, and now I'm going to try to get her to change to a medication that may make her urinate more in an SGL2 inhibitor. She may not be too excited about that. So you have to, we have to use good clinical judgment, but I think in short, yeah, probably we need to slowly move our patients on sulfonylureas onto a different class of, of drug. Okay. So what are the treatment goals for this particular patient, Marty, and uh, how do we explain it to him? Okay. Well, as I said a little bit earlier, I think my treatment goal for him is to see what uh, both what we can do to help his lifestyle and put him on an agent that's going to help him succeed and not be counterproductive. So for him in particular, I would certainly choose an SGLT2 inhibitor, and I'd say, look, I can get your numbers down, but our real goal should be a 5% weight loss and getting you a little bit of exercise. So I'd ask him to choose one or the other that he wants to work on, weight loss or exercise, and then focus on that for the next two to three visits. Once we found his motivation and helped him along with that, I'd bring up the other. Yeah, so weight loss would be an easy one because if you put him on an SGLT2 inhibitor, um, I think he's going to probably lose a little bit of weight. And so now's a good time to have him make a dietary change, just one or two changes, and have him get that success of weight loss. Follow him up every month or two, and once that's going well, talk to him about what, how he might change his behavior with regards to his work taking a five-minute walk every two hours, getting up from his computer, setting a timer, and getting him moving, um, have him find a buddy to exercise with, have him uh, identify the piece of exercise furniture in his home that's covered by laundry, and consider its, its use in his daily routine, help him identify what time of day is best for him to try to integrate it, and certainly journal those changes. So if he can keep track of whatever dietary changes he make and the days he exercises on and brings that in to show me, I feel very comfortable that I can probably help him live longer and better with his type 2 diabetes. And, and I really like that idea is that you um, also give him a, a, you know, a couple of things to work on and, and small goals that you're not hitting them like, you know, you need to lose, you know, 60 pounds. You give them small goals that, that are not overwhelming. And along with the new med, that will help with weight loss as well. So that's a great idea. Yeah, I, I think I, I always give patients I, like this, I'll give them one month follow-ups. And I'll just say, look, we're going to have to see each other once a month for the next three to six months. And each time at the end of the visit, I ask them to choose a goal and just focus on that for that month. People need that small bit of encouragement. They, they're overwhelmed um, uh, when they think about the broad spectrum of the things that we tend to sometimes outline for them. So give them short, obtainable goals and let them help them to succeed. Great. Susan, thanks so much for joining me on this discussion. My pleasure. Practice pointer, sulfonylureas, while valuable for the last 50 or 60 years, probably uh, should become less and less a part of our practice as they increase adverse risks, including cardiovascular outcomes and all-cause mortality. Join us next time where we'll be discussing the management of acute stroke in the office, in particular around the use of supplemental oxygen. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. For more information about the article referenced in today's episode, look under the Resources section of the episode landing page. Need help reaching your CME credit goal this year? If so, 
Please browse the more than 300 free CME accredited activities now available on primed.com. We want to keep making this podcast better with every episode, so we need your feedback. Tell us what you think by submitting your feedback via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or log into primed.com and submit your feedback at the bottom of the episode landing page. Thank you again for listening.